this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Please be seated. So my wife really did not like the opening illustration that I'd spent the better part of two hours writing uh, in my manuscript this morning. I'm telling you secrets, babe. Now I thought it was very clever, but I'm going to trust that she was right on this one and you can thank her after the service. I was going to talk about that Greek tragedy, Medea, which was probably the origin of the great proverb about how hell hath no fury such as a woman scorned. If you're actually interested in the story, it's public domain now. I'm sure that you can Google it. But in any case, the big idea here is that the protagonist, Medea, uh, found herself in a lot of trouble with nowhere to go. So suddenly, out of nowhere, a flying chariot appeared to whisk her away to safety. Now, in Greek theater, they built a special pulley system just for this type of thing, which apparently happened a lot in Greek drama. Now, it's from that pulley system that we get this whole concept of deus ex machina, or God from out of the machine. Now, in literary criticism, deus ex machina is a plot device whereby a seemingly unsolvable problem in a story is suddenly and abruptly resolved by an unexpected and unlikely occurrence. From Medea's flying chariot to the appearance of Hymen and Shakespeare's As You Like It to Tolkien's giant flying eagles, Deus Ex Machina pops up in literature, drama, and movies the world round and throughout the centuries. Now, at times, this comes across as quite laughable, like in The Princess Bride, you know, that, that scene where Miracle Max discovers that Wesley is only mostly dead and then revives him with a rather large pill. But when used well, it can bring profound and moving resolution, like in Harry Potter, when Harry discovers that he is the last Horcrux, and so he chooses to sacrifice himself to save his friends. And I think that that last example especially explains why deus ex machina works so well when it actually works. And that's because it ultimately points to the gospel. When we hear these stories, it's like that familiar tune that you can't quite place. It's an echo from Eden. For those of us who truly know Christ, we can identify the tune quickly as the song of redemption. As St. Paul reminds us, while we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the point of utter hopelessness and despair when all was dark and with no light at the end of the tunnel, Jesus came into our world to save us. Now, the first few verses in John's chapter 2 present a real deus ex machina. Right, this moment, we're working from a narrative passage today. 
And I really think that the best approach here is just to follow the flow of the story. So I'm going to work my way through the verses in order, beginning at verse 1. So if you can look with me at the text, beginning at verse 1, it says, Now on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, John's gospel is quite unique from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, known as the synoptic gospels, and that it leaves out a number of stories that are shared by the former and takes a rather unique narrative approach in comparison. Though his use of the Greek language is quite elementary, especially in contrast to Luke's gospel, John's instinct for storytelling is absolutely brilliant. John loves to give his readers subtle hints. He loves to tease questions, leaving the reader on the edge of their seat. Now, in this first verse, John chapter 2, verse 1, he provides three important pieces of information that add a lot of color to the rest of this specific story. Now, the first is perhaps the most significant, but also the most subtle. When we read, on the third day, this should cause us, the reader, to go back and look at the preceding verses. What happened three days ago? Now, beginning at the 13th verse of chapter 1, and if you have a copy of scripture, I would encourage you to go there, John chapter 1, verse 13. Uh, But beginning at 13 and continuing through the rest of our lesson into 11 this morning, John describes the events of a single week. And that week culminating in Jesus turning the water into wine. On the first day, delegates were sent from the priest to John the Baptist inquiring, Who are you? And he was definitive in answering, I am not the Christ. Now the reader, the immediate question must be, well then, who are you and who is the Christ? On the second day, the Baptist answers that question when he says of Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is telling us that Jesus, in fact, is the Christ. On the third day, two of John's disciples leave John to follow Jesus. On the fourth day, Peter is introduced to Jesus, and on the fifth, Nathanael acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. So chapter 2, verse 1 begins on the third day, which is to say two days after Nathanael's confession, which means that the events in Cana occur on the seventh day. And this is important. More to come on that. So John's stated purpose for writing this gospel in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, is that his intended audience may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing they may have life in his name. It's my belief that John's original intended audience were diaspora Jews and Jewish proselytes, people who knew their Greek Old Testament like the back of their hands. For these readers, the placement of the wedding at Cana on the seventh day could not have been missed. Though the events in Cana surely did not occur on the actual Sabbath, that this story is the seventh day in John's account conveys very strong symbolic meaning of completion. More on that to come. Now, John also tells us that the wedding occurred at Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana is a village about four miles away from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. 
John also tells us that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was present at the event, which implies that this was likely a family affair. Now, there's no mention of Joseph, which itself implies that Mary at this time is now a widow. And it can be inferred that Mary may have had some responsibility for the organization of catering the wedding event, <coughs> hence her attempt to deal with the shortage of the wine. Now, we're told then in verse 2 that Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. And this is important because it means that while Jesus was assuredly related to someone in the wedding party, he was invited in a unique capacity as a rabbi. It doesn't mean that he was the wedding officiant. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. That's not really the point for John. But the fact that his disciples, who, as far as we can tell from chapter 1, had been complete strangers to Jesus until they decided to follow him, the fact that they were invited is important to John. Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel are all now considered part of Jesus' family. What must this mean for Mary, who, as a widow in first century Judea, surely depended greatly on her firstborn son for provision and safety? How might the development of Jesus' new teaching ministry have impacted her? We can begin to see a glimpse of the emerging dynamic in the next two verses. John says, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus came to him. They have no wine. Now, weddings in this culture were massive events, which could go on for days. The family of the bridegroom were responsible for hosting, feeding, and entertaining their guests, which would have included a long list of neighbors and very, very distant relations. Running out of wine was not just inconvenience, but it was a social disaster and a disgrace to the family. The family would have to live with the shame of it for a long time to come, and bride and groom might regard it as bringing bad luck on their newly inaugurated married life. Upon the discovery that the wine is all gone, Mary's gut reaction is to bring the problem directly to Jesus. Now, it's important to consider here that she was approaching Jesus as a mother approaches her son. She was hoping for a practical solution. Perhaps John will go to the market and pick up some wine real quick. But John tells us in verse 11 that what happened was the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. So it's fair to say she was not anticipating a literal miracle here. Jesus' response to Mary in verse 4 comes probably as much of a shock to us as it did to her in that very moment. John says, Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, just a word to all of the sons who are in the room this morning. Please don't speak to your mothers this way. She probably won't react as well as Mary did in that moment. But I think it's important to speak to that point. I, I don't believe that this translation really does justice to the text. Woman, to our ears, is sharp and terribly disrespectful. It conjures up images of George Jefferson telling Wheezy to get back in the kitchen. And that most assuredly was not Jesus' tone here. Now the Greek word gynai would not have conveyed such rudeness, but it still wasn't really a term of endearment either. 
In his commentary on this passage, D.A. Carson suggests this might be better translated as ma'am. Respectful, but not very sweet. Its use politely but definitively communicates distance. Jesus has just begun his earthly ministry, and as such, he's established a level of differentiation from his mother and his nuclear family. Mary can no longer lean upon him as she must have since the death of her husband. This is not callousness from Jesus towards his mother. We can move forward in the story and see even at his crucifixion, Jesus arranged for Mary's support and care. This is also not anything that might entail a violation of the fifth commandment, to honor your father and mother. Rather, it's a clear message that no one, no one has an inside track with Jesus. Mary knew Jesus as her son, the child she bore and raised. She had nursed him, changed his diaper, soothed him when he cried, taught him to speak, and she'd made the sacrifices that every mother makes for her children. Yet even she, Mary, the mother of Jesus, must come to him as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For John, from the outset of his gospel, it is of the utmost importance that we know who Jesus is. Unapologetically, John tells us that Jesus is God. In chapter 1, he takes us back to the creation. In Arche, in the beginning, the very first two words of his gospel, copied and pasted from Genesis 1.1. Jesus was with God. Jesus is God. Now Moses told us that God created the heavens and the earth by the power of his word and all very good. And John explains in greater clarity that Jesus is the word of God through which all things had been made. John tells us that the fully divine word became fully human and lived among his people, but that his people did not recognize him, nor did they receive him. But John says that all who would receive him, who will believe in his name, will be granted adoption into the household of God. This is why the answer to this question, who is Jesus, is so very, very important. You see, if your Jesus is just a good teacher or just an example to follow, then, friend, you don't know Jesus. If Jesus is just the guy that you go to for a fix when you have a problem, friend, you don't know Jesus. When Mary came to Jesus to fix her problem with the wine, he asked, what does this have to do with me? For Mary, the answer must have been obvious because the shame cast upon the entire family for this major faux pas. Shame is a powerful motivator. There isn't much that any of us wouldn't do to avoid shame if possible or to cover it so that no one else could see it. Whatever shame may have fallen on Mary, well, that same shame would have also cast a shadow over Jesus. How could he not care? But it's not that Jesus didn't care about Mary's problem. 
or that he was unable to empathize with her and her feelings of shame and fear. But his question shows us that he was focused on a much, much more significant problem, one that could only be fixed by God. Jesus would have had Mary understand this. So when he told her, my hour has not yet come, I wonder, was she reminded of the words of Simeon when she had presented Jesus for the first time in the temple? Simeon pulled her aside and said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword that will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I'm convinced that Mary was in some way reminded of the miraculous circumstances of Jesus' birth when I consider her remarkable response to his soft rebuke. Look with me at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is a testimony to Mary's humility and her faith. Though she couldn't have fully comprehended the meaning of Jesus' hour, that is, his atoning death and his glorious resurrection, she seems to have understood that he was destined for something of great import. And yet, she still had faith that he was going to do something about her present crisis. She walked away with confidence that Jesus saw her anxiety and her shame, and that he would be zealous for her good no matter what happened. Mary had initially approached Jesus as her baby boy, expecting him to fix her problem, but now she's seeing him in a greater light as her Messiah, trusting in his authority. However, you saw Jesus when you came to church this morning. Whatever you hoped to get from him at church today, John would have you likewise depart knowing him as Savior and God, trusting that he is zealous also for your good. That this very same message is conveyed by Isaiah in our first lesson this morning, I think is remarkable. In that passage, the Messiah speaks to Jerusalem in the midst of her distress. Though her punishment and exile was carried out in the sight of the nations, though she was carried away in chains, the Messiah promises that he will not remain silent until her reputation is restored for all to see. As a husband gives his name to his bride, so the Messiah promises to give a new name to his people in place of abandonment and poverty. He promises to cherish and provide for her. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, he says, so shall your God rejoice over you. Friends, when you're experiencing seasons of disappointment and grief, it's easy to fall into despair and wonder, has God abandoned me? When you are overwhelmed with anxiety and with shame, you may even be inclined to question God's character or his care. I certainly know in those moments, I have. It is precisely in those moments when we really need to know Jesus, to recite his promises, and to move forward in faith that regardless of today's crisis, he still is zealous for our good. If you really know Jesus, 
as he's revealed to us in scripture, then you know that to all who believe in his name, he has given the right to become children of God. You are his adopted son, his adopted daughter. He's given you a new name that can never be revoked. He rejoices over you. When you know that, then with Mary, you'll be able to carry on, freed from the burden of anxiety or shame, because Jesus has carried our greatest burden upon the cross. And he can certainly be trusted with our passing concerns. John continues in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars, therefore Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. Now these jars had been placed there for the Jewish rites of purification, likely for guests to wash their hands before joining the feast. Uh, the jars had already been filled with water before any of the guests arrived, and by now they had certainly served their purpose. As guests had come to the feast, they would have poured out the water a little at a time for ritual washings. Jesus now instructs the servants to refill those same jars with water, and they do just that, filling them up to the brim, to overflowing. And now that they're overflowing, Jesus then tells them to draw some out, to present his wine to the master of the feast. Now, the imagery here is so, so rich. As mentioned earlier, John has written out the events from chapter 1, verse 19, to the end of our passage today as an analogical week. This miracle occurs on the seventh day. The events of the wedding of Cana are set up to represent the Sabbath day of celebration and completion. The massive stone jars represent the fullness of the ceremonial law. That they are filled to the point of overflowing, well, that symbolizes the fulfillment of the law in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And that the wine is drawn out of those jars of water represents the newness of life that is brought forth for those who will receive the benefits of Christ's redemption. John then uses the objectivity of someone who was unaware of the provenance of the wine to attest to its quality in verse 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Though the miracle is full of symbolism, it's not merely a symbol. We would do a great disservice to John's gospel if we treated this story as a mere allegory. Water was truly transformed into wine, and that wine was far superior to whatever was on offer up to this point. While Jesus' eye was on the ultimate prize, the redemption of his church, he still loved his mother and empathized with her anxiety and shame. He still took time to celebrate a wedding, to gather with friends around a meal, and to enjoy very, very good wine. And while he did all of that, he demonstrated the power of the gospel to all who had eyes to see it. 
I think it's also important to note, again, the connection to the gospel. Because in Jesus Christ, God has saved up the very best for the last. God had given good gifts to his people Israel all throughout redemptive history. But now that Jesus has come into the world, we get to taste the fullness, the richness of the gospel. The very best for the last. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, today, Jesus invites his disciples to a wedding feast. Spread out on this table is a lavish demonstration of God's love for us, his people. Wine and bread that both point to the ultimate revelation of Jesus' glory and his finished work on the cross and his resurrection to life again. And he invites us to come and know him as the Messiah, bringing our anxieties and our shame to exchange for hope and unexpected delight as his sons and daughters. Amen.